and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel Dixon, a visiting assistant professor at the Suffolk University Law School Intellectual Property and Entrepreneurship Clinic and a former trademark examining attorney at the USPTO. We will discuss her draft article, High Hopes, Cannabis Trademarks at the USPTO. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Delighted to have you on. I'm a big fan of all the great trademark posting you do on, <laughs> on Twitter. I'll, I'll confess to even uh, nicking some examples from you to use in my classes over time, right? I'm always like trying to keep it au courant and you're very helpful on that front. So I'm, I'm especially interested to talk to you about this paper to talk not only about trademark law, but also kind of trademark theory from the perspective of someone who has been in the trenches for mm. a long time, as it were. But for the benefit of listeners and for myself as well, because I know a lot more about trademark law than I do about marijuana law and and policy, I, I wonder if you could start by just providing like a potted history, as it were, of uh, marijuana regulation. Yes, I am happy to make my best effort to do a short intro to cannabis law. So essentially, uh, cannabis is the name of a plant, which includes many species, including hemp, which is cannabis with low levels of THC at the very basic level, and marijuana, which is cannabis with high levels of THC. Marijuana, so high levels of THC, is federally illegal. It is classified as a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substance Act. Schedule One is a category that, according to the Department of Justice, drugs in this category have no currently accepted medical use in the United States, a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision, and a high potential for abuse. Other drugs that probably actually belong in Schedule One include heroin and ecstasy and LSD. And then marijuana is there, even though at the time the CSA passed, there was contemporary evidence with plentiful contemporary evidence indicating that marijuana was safe and non-addictive. The reasons it was scheduled as Schedule 1 are complicated, but mostly due to racism and power and outside the uh, purview of this paper. But uh, it is a really interesting history, and I do encourage people to read more about it. There's, It's so much more horrible than you would expect. So that's the situation with marijuana. The status of hemp which is cannabis with low levels of THC, was nebulous for a long time. In 2018, it was removed from Schedule One status officially in the 2018 Farm Bill. And that basically said, we can start using hemp for things. It, hemp had already been used for a ton of stuff. There's a very long history of its use as a fiber, as a textile, hemp seeds in milk. But this really opened up the market for uses of hemp CBD. CBD is cannabidiol. It is the second most populous active ingredient, basically, in cannabis um, to Delta 9 THC. And there is some pretty significant medical evidence that CBD has a lot of uses. However, since CBD is actually an active ingredient, hemp CBD is actually an active ingredient in an approved drug, the FDA basically doesn't allow hemp-derived CBD to be used for ingestion or medicinal or therapeutic use, except for those that go through the pharmaceutical system, which means there are none, except for that one at the dialects. And 
So basically all the all the hemp CBD products you see everywhere, they're not federally legal. People think they are, they're really not. This is kind of a messy situation. The FDA has recently admitted that, hey, maybe this isn't the best way to regulate this. Maybe we should come up with a new way to regulate this, being the federal government. The jury's still out on how they're going to do that. I will say personally, they're basically treating it as an active ingredient in a pharmaceutical, which like, of course it is. But I think given the many historical studies we have on its use and its um, safety, I think it should be treated perhaps more as caffeine. Caffeine is an active ingredient in some prescription drugs, but it's also generally generally recognized as safe, which is the legal term for consumption in drinks or other things. But we'll see what happens with that. Anyway, too long didn't read. Cannabis with high levels of THC, still illegal. Cannabis with low levels of THC, hemp, kind of legal, usually legal, uh, but less legal than you'd think. This is a bit complicated by the fact that people very often misuse the terms cannabis, hemp, and marijuana. Like even people in the industry, I've heard people mix it up. We'll get back to that later. I should note the Department of Human and Health Services has recommended rescheduling marijuana to Schedule 3, which would mean you could actually get it from a pharmacy. There would There's so many other laws around marijuana that that's still very complicated, but that hasn't happened yet. I personally suspect that they may try to push it through this year, if at all possible, because it's an election year. But again, it's the federal government. We'll see. Marijuana has come close to being rescheduled many, many times, like so many more times than you think, and it has never succeeded. So, so that's the federal status. And then on the state level, the states basically decided they wanted marijuana and sort of just started legalizing it. And this started in 1996 in California. And basically, eventually, after about 15 years or so, the federal government was like, you know what, we really don't have the resources to chase every medical patient taking medical marijuana. We're going to let them do that without pursuing them anymore. We'll just concentrate on like the companies. And then a couple years after that, they moved to, okay, as long as you're a company, you're a patient and you're obeying state law and you're not funneling money to drug cartels, you're, you're making sure it doesn't get to kids. You're making sure it doesn't like it doesn't cause bad problems. Then we're going to leave you alone. So basically, the states just sort of did what they want until the federal government was like, oh, I guess we're letting you do this now. So that's how we have this extremely weird situation where marijuana is federally illegal across the United States, but it is legal and widely available in 40 states, four territories, and the District of Columbia. And to be fair, the last time I updated this paper was in October. It is possible it's legal in more places now because things do change that fast in marijuana law. When I worked on this last summer, one of my numbers was off in a chart and I couldn't figure it out. So I put a research assistant on it and he came back and he's like, oh, um, another state legalized in August and that's why your number's off. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's how fast things move around here. So from a from a trademark perspective, it it seems like cannabis and marijuana specifically are in a really interesting kind of space insofar as they're sort of technically illegal, but also like realistically in places where states have legalized it, they're they're just consumer products. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean they're pretty controlled consumer products in many of those states. 
But yeah, no, you can just get them pretty much anywhere in states where it's legal. It's a really weird situation. And like, because of the weird hemp CBD thing, even states that don't have legal marijuana regimes, like I'm originally from Texas. I've visited family down there and there are a ton of like hemp CBD stores and Delta 8 THC, which, so Delta 8 THC occurs naturally in cannabis, but not at levels where it does anything. But basically Delta 8 THC as it's sold in the consumer market is um, just highly processed to make it an active ingredient from hemp. And that also has a weird nebulous legal state right now where like it's probably still schedule one according to some people but there are a couple court decisions that are like but this actually probably should be legal probably it's a little funny because i found numerous examples of people trying to get trademark registrations for delta 8 thc where the uspto has just not responded to them in like years because they so clearly do not want to touch this with a 10-foot pole It's not all of them. There's definitely plenty that have been refused, but particularly more recently, as more court cases have come down, there's very much sort of a unofficial suspension, which is actually a really big problem because there isn't a really good way to make the USPTO respond to you. And obviously it makes, it causes problems for your business if you have this trademark application that no one's looked at in two or three years because the USPTO is cowardly and doesn't want to deal with it. So stay tuned for my next paper on that subject, among others. Well, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about the trademark system in general. What are trademarks supposed to do? How do you go about registering one? Why would you want to register instead of like, what's what's the goal here? What are we trying to accomplish? Yes, definitely. So trademarks, they're source identifiers. That has always been sort of the main goal of it. So I always like I tend to like default to using like main big company examples. So if we're talking like Apple computers, uh, the word Apple is a trademark of the company in use with their varied goods and services. They also have like their Apple logo, which is a trademark. You can also have product trademarks like the iPhone. You actually have a trademark the moment you start using it in commerce. You can gain some limited rights to it just by using it. So for example, my father has a software company, which he has run since I was in first grade. He has never applied for a trademark registration. He's not interested in applying for a trademark registration. He still has rights to it because he's used it for a very long time, but he also would have trouble. The limits of a common law trademark protection means he really, if someone else started pretending to be like him and causing confusion in the marketplace, he would really have to go to court and spend a lot of money to even prove that he owns the trademark and has the rights to the trademark and to stop other people from using it. With a trademark registration, you basically have a lot of presumptions basically saying, yes, you have the right to this countrywide. That's the other thing is common law trademarks are very geographically based. Usually it can be your state if it's a small enough state, like maybe in New Hampshire. But like if you're in like a bigger state, maybe a county or two, it's complicated. And I have not read Don Donuts in a really long time. I don't do litigation. And that's where common law trademark rights fall under. But a registration gives you a lot more protection nationwide against people trying to use trademarks confusingly similar to yours. And that's always the standard of would a consumer look at this and be confused and think that like your goods are made by another person or stuff like that. 
So if someone started selling, you know, Apple teeny computers, Apple computers is famous enough, which brings in a whole other issues. Um, people would probably get a little confused and think those are probably related because Apple is so associated with that. And yeah, that's basically what a treadmill registration is for. From a very practical standpoint, I've done a fair amount of research into the historical use of trademarks and what the market economy was like before we actually had reliable trademark protections. And it was basically like if you had a tinker going from village to village selling you things. You didn't know the tinker's name, probably. You didn't know where the product was from. You, you didn't know who made it. You didn't know anything. And if he went to the next village and whatever you bought from him broke, you had zero recourse. But then when a couple of trademark protections came into place, like one of the very first ones was like a, a bread law because people kept putting stuff that shouldn't belong in bread, in bread, like um, sawdust. So bakers were had to start putting their, like making a mark on their bread. So people, if the bread harmed them, could come, knew where it came from, could go back and get recourse and the city officials could do something about it. And that's sort of how it, it, it kind of started from a consumer protection standpoint and really built up a lot that way. And over time in the US, it's, it's much more, it's a little less focused on, it's a lot less focused on consumer protection and goes a lot more towards companies being able to like reap the goodwill from the goods they've put out there. And an example I use in my paper of this is like the rewards and the the problems. Like Chipotle is a very, very well-known fast food chain. And I will admit if I'm in a city and I don't know any of the restaurants and I don't know what's good, I can always reliably look for Chipotle and know generally what I'm going to get. And it's going to be qu good quality. And I have a general idea of what the cost is going to be, as opposed to taking a chance on a restaurant I don't know anything about. On the other side of that is when Chipotle had a whole salmonella situation a couple of years back, people avoided going to Chipotle for a really long time. If we didn't have reliable trademark rights, they might just, and you just knew it was a restaurant, like a couple restaurants in a couple states had poisoned people with salmonella. Accidentally, no, def no defamation here. You would maybe just stop going out to eat and just cook all your own food. But because we have trademark rights, you can pinpoint who the problem is and avoid them. So yeah, so that's kind of how trademark laws work and help. I mean, what you've described sounds totally consistent with the market for cannabis related products like marijuana. I mean, I was just in DC and people were selling marijuana at various stores and so on. And here in New Orleans, people sell marijuana at, at different stores direct to consumers for them to use. So presumably right? All the people making those marijuana products then are going to go out and, you know, develop trademarks and register them so that consumers know where the product is coming from, right? Well, they want to. Well, plenty of them want to. Maybe not all of them, but most big companies really do want to protect their brand, build their brand, achieve that name recognition and have it consistent in every state they operate in. I should note because of the federal law, illegal aspect of marijuana. You don't have acknowledged interstate commerce when it comes to cannabis and marijuana. All these cannabis seeds have to come from somewhere. It's not like the Virgin Mary marijuana here situation, like coming out of nowhere, but they just sort of don't talk about that. But the moment you cross the state line, you're more likely to draw the attention of the feds and they're going to be more annoyed. At you. So like you have multi-state organization cannabis companies, but what they often have to do is have just like entirely like they have an overall umbrella company, but they can't share 
like supplies and products across state lines with cannabis in the same way that you can with other products, because let's not get the federal government after us. So you really do have sort of like little state regime here, state regime here, state regime here. I used to work for a company that started in Illinois and then got some licenses in New York, and then they expanded to Maryland. But those are all very much, I believe they they might have all had to have their own like entity in the states even. And state laws on cannabis vary wildly as to like what they require. So these are all very big grains of salt on that. Anyway, so yes, cannabis companies definitely do want reliable countrywide rights. That is not possible right now because the USPTO for many decades has interpreted the Lanham Act, the trademark law, to um, bar registration of any trademarks used in unlawful commerce. And so if they see something in the mark in the trademark application that is not federally lawful, they will not approve it. They will refuse it. So for example, okay, Cura Leaf is a really big brand that operates in gazillions of states. They're one of the largest cannabis companies in the entire United States. Their only federal trademark registrations are for like water bottles and clothing. So those don't even have the, the word cannabis in there. They wouldn't even show up on a search if you were searching for confusingly similar goods or services. They, they obviously are selling cannabis and they do have common law rights. And I believe they do have state trademark registrations in many of the states within which they operate. But state trademark state trademarks are alarmingly underdeveloped. I actually spoke to um, Luke Zimmerman, who's been doing a lot of work with uh, cannabis trademark registrations in California since the very beginning. I should also note, California has had state legal cannabis since 1996. They only allowed registration of trademarks at the state level with cannabis goods, I believe, five years ago, five or six years ago. Like it was that late. For the long time, they wouldn't allow it at all. And no one has cared about these state trademark registrations for years because in this day and age, everything is so interstate and so multinational that most of these registries have not been kept up to date in ages. So you have these these whole systems that are having to be built up to deal with this and the infrastructure isn't there. The employees are often not there. I mean, when you have a department that goes from like, maybe they get, State trademark registries are so opaque in a lot of ways that I don't actually have good examples to come up here. But like, we can assume that there were not that many applications going in at California for uh, trademark registrations until they started accepting cannabis. And then they get a huge flood because it's an entire industry trying to get protections in a very large state. So besides all the infrastructure problem, these are not always reliable to search. If they have online search registries, which some of them don't, a lot of times they're ridiculously out of date. A lot of these are untested in courts. Like you don't know exactly what they do because when people have state trademark registrations, the, the vast majority of cases, you'll see it tacked on to a federal trademark infringement claim just because, you know, you, you throw everything at the wall in a, in a lawsuit. I don't think we have any um, precedent as to what an actual just state trademark infringement claim looks like in like California now. Um, when I spoke to Luke Zimmerman um, a couple months ago about this, he I believe that was what he said is like, we don't have precedent. We don't know what this looks like. We don't know what the standards are, which is a big problem. And in some of these states, like it comes with no 
presumptions. So yes, at the federal level, you get a ton of benefits with your trademark registration that really make your life easier in court, such as constructive notice of your ownership, prima facie evidence as to the validity of the mark, and the owner's ownership, and their exclusive right to use this, and, and so many other things. It helps a lot. And then at the state level, you get, sometimes you get some of those things. And in other states, it's literally just a piece of paper. So you have giant multi-million dollar companies operating in multiple states with tons of employees serving tons of people who their only federal registrations are for like merchandise, water bottles. They don't have the ability to really prevent people from imitating their product in other states. And this actually has happened. There is a cannabis product, Charlotte's Web, which went rather viral years ago for helping children with pediatric seizures. It was notably a very high CBD, low THC strain. And basically you had all these like desperate parents really wanting to get this for their children. And a lot of people actually moved to the state where the company making it are based, Colorado. And there's a whole other story there. But uh, you had all these copycats of people starting to sell things under Charlotte's Web that parents would get and buy and give to their children. Unfortunately, a lot of these were not that strain or anything like it. And tests found that some of these had way too high of a THC level to work the way it was supposed to. They didn't have the CBD levels that they advertised. There were actual contaminants, like pesticides and such in some. And like it ended up actually really hurting consumers, like children who were already not doing great. And that company has sort of like wrested control of the Charlotte's Web name to an extent at this point. They've they've spent so much money protecting their name, but it definitely still gets misused a lot. And again, like the states operate very, very differently when it comes to cannabis. So if you're in like a highly regulated state, like Massachusetts or Illinois, you're going to get a product at a dispensary, which has a name and it, it'll have like the, the lab breakdown of all the chemical components. Some of the states I've, I've seen packaging from California, where it literally is like, here's the QR code where you can track the seed to sale journey of your product. And to the extent where it's like, and your, your product was packaged by Steve, you know, and then you have other places. DC, you mentioned earlier, is a very, very weird cannabis state. You're not actually allowed to sell it or buy it there because Congress doesn't want DC to have that. So what's resulted is a very weird gifting system where you buy something like a brochure or I've heard digital art is on the rise and they, uh, your gift on the size your side is uh, whatever weed product you're looking for. And some of these are pretty legit looking products. And some of them are literally just like a joint in a bag and you don't know what they are. And like, how, how do trademarks eat rights even start to work there when you're like, I don't, this is an industry that actually really desperately needs federal trademark registration because it, it, there's genuine consumer harms happening from it. Like maybe they aren't always as dramatic as people actually getting hurt by the product, but at the very least, you're going to have people who either are not getting the product they think they're getting and the chemical makeup is totally different and it's not going to help them with their medical problem. Or you pl have plenty of consumers who probably really could benefit from cannabis, but who are too scared of these stories they hear about 
people getting the wrong product and, and getting hurt to even go near it. So in your paper, you present a empirical study tracking trademark registration applications by cannabis companies working in different markets and drawing some conclusions from those registrations, the number of registrations, where they're taking place and so on and so forth. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the study, sort of like what the data you were working with was, what your methodology was, what you were hoping to learn from conducting the study and what what you ultimately drew from from the results that you generated. Sure. So I will say this this paper originally started as sort of a comparison between marijuana applications now and applications to register alcohol with alcohol trademark registrations during prohibition. That was a lot. So uh, we cut that part out and I do hope to get back to that research at some point because I did find out some very interesting things. So that's how the compare, like the search started as I want to be able to compare this data. And then I discovered that this on its own is incredibly interesting and has a lot of things to say. So basically I searched the trademark register by year starting in 1996 and going up to 2023. I started in 1996 because that was the year medical marijuana was quote legalized in California. And I basically searched for any applications that have cannabis goods and services in them. This is a complicated thing to search. So there are a number of practices examiners go through when they examine an application that might have cannabis in it that could have them ask the um, applicant to amend the identification of goods and services to say that it does not have cannabis in it. Like if they suspect it is, but it, it, it isn't, it's like an herbal cigarette with like cloves in it or something, whatever the, the kids are smoking these days. So those would get caught up in my search and included in this, even if it was not a cannabis company at all. There's no good way to exclude those without literally going one by one by one. Also because of the known unlawful use ban on trademark registrations, a lot of cannabis companies will apply for marks that don't say cannabis in them. So as I mentioned earlier, Cureleaf, uh, water bottles, clothing, that would not get picked up in my search. And you've also had people trying really shady things like applying for um, essential oil dispensers or diffusers for vapes. And those would also not show up on the search, but there's no really good way. So, so there's a lot of caveats in the search, but this seemed like the best way I could do it. And basically I ended up just doing a year by year search of the number of applications and I compared it to the number of state legal regimes we had to see if the number of states with state legal cannabis affected that. And then I also compared it to um, any sort of movement on cannabis at the federal level as well. So found a number of really interesting things. The increase of state legal medical marijuana regimes alone did not really increase filings between like 1996 and 2008. Although we had states with legal cannabis jumping from 1 to 13, applications at the federal level were still very overall quite low. This is possibly because the federal government was still prosecuting patients at that point, and the companies really wanted to stay off their radar, and also just a belief that it had no chance of succeeding. I've also found, though, that any sign of any federal recognition of the cannabis industry has led to an uptick in filings. 
So in 2009, the attorney general at the time released a memo. It's been called the Ogden Memo, which basically said, we're not going to go after patients. And it this is all very, like, it's not, that isn't law. That isn't even like a specific policy. It's just sort of like, here are our priorities. Don't go after the patients, go after the companies. There are no promises there. It wasn't even to the public. It was to like the individual people working under him. But that did lead to a rise in activity. Um, and the same thing happened a couple years later with the Cole memo, which went much further and was like, okay, we won't go after patients and companies operating legally under state legal regimes, but we will go after you if you don't regulate things closely enough. And if like it gets into the hands of kids or cartels or it causes like a criminal situation. So there was a, more applications rising at that point. Hilariously, in 2010, this incident happened, and this actually starts off my paper in the introduction. Medical marijuana was actually added to the USPTO trademark ID manual in 2010, and no one really knows why or how this happened. Some of the IDs were actually added on April 1st, so some people do refer to it as an April Fool's Day joke, but they weren't all added on April 1st. So I do not personally make that conclusion. And it seemed like the USPTO didn't know that they were added until like a journalist called and asked them about it. And then they literally were like, oh shit, the medical marijuana IDs all disappear from the manual. And everyone who's filed an application at that point with one of those IDs or with an ID relating to medical marijuana receives a letter from the USPTO that's basically like, we will refund you all your filing fees if you abandon this in the next 30 days. Because <laughs> normally the USPTO just does not refund you your filing fees for anything. So that led to a big spike that year because everyone was like, oh heck, it's in the ID manual. We got to go. I will say to this day, even though there are lawful cannabis identifications you can use in trademark applications now and have for over five years, there are, cannabis does not appear in the ID manual anywhere, even though they actually have very, very particular requirements regarding like stating the chemical identification and it could really benefit from being in the ID manual. So people knew what they wanted. But yeah. So basically any sign of federal recognition, boosts in filings, people try. However, there's usually a decrease in filings the year after, after the USPTO continues to refuse them. The biggest spike we've had was after the Farm Bill of 2018, where filings just completely skyrocketed until you ended up with over 6,000 applications filed in 2019 with cannabis goods or services IDs in them. Um, those really sunk down after they realized that not everything with hemp CBD in it would be improved. Side note, this is when I actually was brought onto the special work project team at the USPTO focused on cannabis trademark application because there were so many cannabis trademark applications. They brought on like many more people and uh, I was one of those people. So if you received a refusal from me, I apologize. I was following the law. Anyway, since then, applications have been gradually decreasing and this is interesting because in 2022 and 2023, we've received a lot of signs from the federal government that they're thinking of changing their mind. In October 2022, Biden requested, like, let's start talking about rescheduling marijuana. And he pardoned all prior federal offenses for simple possession. In January 2023, the FDA admitted, hey, maybe this uh, CBD regulation situation is not working and we should come up with something else. And... In August 2023, the HHS recommendation to reschedule to Schedule 3 was leaked. 
probably on purpose. And a lot of people, including me, think that there's going to be an effort to really push that rescheduling sometime in 2024 before the election. Applications are not rising in response to that, which is completely against what's happened in the past. I think maybe the cannabis industry has just gotten burned a few too many times. They've gotten their hopes up too many times. And a lot of them already like already spent all their litigation money trying to push this a couple years ago, like really arguing like under the, the Cole memo that like it should be allowed. Or a lot of people argued um, if we file an intent to use application, it should be read as an intent to use this lawfully in federal commerce in the future when it's legal. And the TTAB, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, has struck those down every single time. Like, no, 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 not happening. So I'm wondering if they're just waiting at this point for like something a little more definitive from the federal government, which is an interesting strategy since at this point, we're looking at like nine, 10 months before an examiner even looks at your trademark application after you file it. I feel like if you filed an application now in January, 2024, there's a really good chance you might be able to get a marijuana registration before the end of the year, which is very bizarre to think about, but I, I really think they're going to try to push it through. And uh, you could call it a, a hail marijuana on Biden's part. So I don't know why they're not doing that, but the numbers are still going down. They haven't risen dramatically in response to anything like that. I don't have a good finger on why, but it's it's a really interesting finding. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me about your paper is the sort of backstory of it for me in a lot of ways is the extent to which it shows just how important trademark uh, registration is for industries looking to kind of internally regulate both their relationship to different participants and their relation, but also their relationship to consumers and the kind of the actual kind of costs associated with denying access mm-hmm. to the registration system for it, it seems not particularly good reasons. I don't think the lawful use requirement is well supported in law or in policy. <laughs> so basically um, the Lanham Act requires use in commerce. Um, all the other prior trademark laws had specifically had much more explicit lawful use in commerce requirements. Although, fun fact, at least during Prohibition, that was not interpreted in the same way uh, because the USPTO, well, it was the US Patent Office during Prohibition. They didn't add the T until the 70s. They approved registrations for alcohol that did not fall under an exception during Prohibition. Throughout Prohibition, like 1920 to 1936, I have so much evidence and it's so contrary to what's happening now that it's deeply confusing. And there even was a court case uh, where someone tried to, uh, what was it? I think it was Budweiser, which of course Anheuser-Busch had been using the Budweiser name to sell beer before Prohibition. And then after Prohibition, they had started using it to sell malt syrup, which was notorious. It it was used to make beer at home. It was was basically like chocolate syrup to make beer. This this case, someone tried to sell Budweiser, I believe, malt syrup. And their defense when Anheuser-Busch sued them was, well, but your use is unlawful. And the court actually said straight out, this is an ancillary issue. Their lawful conduct is not the issue here. If there's a if there's a lawfulness issue, that can be dealt with in another forum, which is so fascinating and absolutely not what the courts are doing today. And I do not think 
the writers of the Lanham Act intended for it to be read as a lawful use requirement. But in short, it has been read that way for decades, which maybe it sounds like reasonable on its face until you start thinking about it. Because we've literally, there have literally been trademark registrations invalidated for not complying with like label requirements for insecticides or like there's so many different federal laws and regulations like thousands and thousands and having a trademark office try to decide whether a company is in compliance with laws so completely outside of trademark law doesn't seem to make sense and yeah so from a legal perspective i don't think it makes any sense and then from a policy perspective if the trademark office is trying to protect companies ability to benefit from the money and goodwill they put into their company and get from consumers this goes completely against that it doesn't serve consumers because it ends up causing confusion in the marketplace the inability to get trademark registrations and it actually increases the likelihood that a consumer is going to get hurt by like a fraudulent counterfeit product. I doesn't really serve the USPTO's interest at all. Having to issue all these like refusals, lawful, unlawful use refusals, is just slowing down things as well. So it's also like making things harder on everyone else because it's increasing wait times at the USPTO, which people have been complaining about for for, for years, quite validly. And I just don't think the USPTO has any business in this. I did not always think this way. I certainly did not think this way when I was a trademark examiner. Robert Mikos wrote a incredible article on this subject, which really changed my mind on this a couple years ago. It's um, unauthorized and unwise, the lawful use requirement in trademark law. But it goes into the history of the lawful use requirement and the problems with it so much more than I do in this paper. And yeah, no, he really changed my mind. Professor Mikos's paper is incredible and really changed my mind and was one of the things that sparked my interest in writing this paper. And he also was very, very nice when I emailed him asking if I could look at his list of TTAB cases on lawful use requirement. So, Excellent. Well, Rachel, this has been great. I, I learned a ton about trademark law, trademark examination, and, and how it works in a cannabis context. Uh, I hope your predictions about the future of cannabis registrations come true. And uh, best of luck with uh, the publication process. For Thank you so much. Paper. Yeah.
gamble with life, you can lose it. Gotta grow. Cause your life is a gift, don't abuse it. And you know. If you gamble with life, you can lose it. Gotta grow. Cause your life is a gift, don't abuse it. A lot of people think that marijuana isn't dangerous, but they're wrong. Because not only does it harm a person's body and mind, but it often leads users to try other, even more dangerous drugs. And you know, if you gamble with life, you can lose it. Gotta grow. Cause your life is a gift, don't abuse it. And you know, if you gamble with life, you can lose it. Gotta grow. Cause your life is a gift, don't abuse it.